Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And we are neck deep into movie awards season, so Adam and I thought we'd spend today talking about one of the most bandied around movies of this awards season, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which played in a few theaters but also went directly to Netflix. So in our first segment of the show, I'm going to ask Adam what Roma might help us to imagine about theology and the church and the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Roma for January 27th, the third Sunday after Epiphany. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. So Adam, Alfonso Coron's Children of Men was my favorite movie of 2006. Yeah, it's great. And then his movie Gravity was one of my favorites of 2013. I know history hasn't been as kind to that one, but I stand by it. So I was predisposed to be first in line for his latest offering, Roma, even though it's a bit of a different beat for him. We're done with sci-fi for now. We are instead transported back to Mexico City in the early 1970s. For a lush portrait of Cleo, a domestic servant living with an upper-middle-class professional family, which seems to be a loose mirror of the family in which Cuaron himself grew up. Over the course of a year, we see events unfold in Cleo's own life, in the life of this family, and even in the life of the country in which the story embeds itself. And we can talk about this story, but we're also going to have to talk about the richness with which this film is put together, the visual detail a recreation of Mexico City in black and white that almost feels like Poirot has stepped into some post-war European neorealist masterpiece. And of course, we shouldn't forget to mention that all of this shows up on Netflix and whether that has any bearing on how this film lands with us and what its power is. So, Adam, you take a stab at this. What grabbed you from Roma, and how can it help us think about theology in the church and the world? So like you, I was predisposed to like this. I, I too, am a huge fan of Cuaron. I, I actually think his Harry Potter movie is brilliant as well and probably the best directed and most clear of the series. Uh, so when he was putting together something that was supposed to be a smaller picture or portrait of a family in Mexico City, that that was an interesting choice to me until I saw it and I realized that it is it is bigger than that. And bigger than that in a way that's that's sometimes hard to describe if you haven't seen the movie, in part because the thing that struck me just in watching it the first time is the fact that it's black and white, but not in a nostalgic black and white. You know, there there are a lot of movies that that the choice to to make something black and white is designed to sort of harken back to an older time. And and in our digital age, oftentimes they'll they'll put grain in the film in order to make it feel as if it's an older film. And this movie is so like incredibly clear. The the picture itself um has has almost no um no detritus in it. It has it it is it is so crystal and and so it as I was watching it and thinking about this movie and this movie is, has really sort of captured my imagination for almost a month or six weeks since I last saw it. It's, um, it seems to me that it's a movie about memory. Uh, Quaron is trying to search his own memory, which doesn't have all of the details in it. And in famously, he's, he has described how he went back to the, the household worker that, um, basically raised him in his own home and, and had conversations, long, long conversations with her about what it was like. Uh, and that was in an attempt to set his own memory straight. And 
as I think about this movie a lot, I, I think of it's it's a movie trying to access the past through memory, but but our memories are always incomplete. And our memories are especially hobbled by innocence, being young and not being able to see all of the dangers that surround us, um, but also privilege. So the fact that we uh, that that he lived in a place where he would have a household worker and didn't have to think about what her life was like um, is compromises his memory. Um, and so he needs other things to fill in these memories. He needs someone else to help him tell his story. Um, but strangely, this is not a story about him. This is a story about Cleo, who is the household worker who is from um, it's southern Mexico, is what it sounds like, speaks a different language in addition to Spanish that is the indigenous language of Chiapas. Um, and now as I think about this movie, I think about how the memories of another person help us form our own memories. And um, and this all got me thinking recently about the power of um, the Eucharist as a form of remembering the anamnesis that requires us to borrow others' memories, whether it's the gospel writers, whether it's Paul, whether it's the traditions, so that we can tell a story that we also can claim to be our own. And this is inherently dangerous because we can appropriate and misunderstand the memories of others and not do them justice. Um, but it's also dangerous because by taking these other memories in, it shines a light on who we are and who we're becoming that has to change us. It it subverts our own understandings of ourselves. And so, you know, this movie has got me just sort of like spinning with respect to to ideas of memory and how important those are for our theologies. How about you? I saw this movie twice. Uh, first, in, both times in the theaters because I'm a dork that way. I went back a second time because it, it came through in 70 millimeter here in Austin. So I went to see it in, in film. Um, and and to be honest, as 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 much of a film dork as I am, the difference was not that drastic to me. Though I am so glad that I went back a second time. the The first time that I saw it, what blew me away was just the sheer visual splendor of it. I mean, you've begun to allude to this, but the the only thing i can fi imagine is that quaron must have invented a time machine and brought his production company back to 1971 in mexico city because the degree of historical recreation that lives in these tiny details uh the the um camera shots as they walk through the main square or as they walk down the street that uh li live as much in one simple character lying against the the roadway um or a a, a band of scouts marching down the street or um or just in the the lushness of the the promenade um the, the detail that lives there is is so alive it it seems to me you know where i immediately went as i kind of alluded to in my introduction was the kind of lived-in post-war city that shows up in something like Bicycle Thieves, yeah. uh, uh, which I don't think is entirely, you know, which is has which as a film has a different aim than this one does. But what I kept having to remind myself was that this was all recreation, that it wasn't the neorealist trope, which is walk out in the walk out in the city with a camera and capture life as it is. Yeah, it's not the third man where those buildings were actually bombed out pieces of Vienna. <laughs> right, exactly. This is this is recreation and and the capacity to be able to do neorealism as as historical fiction is just kind of jaw dropping to me. Uh, it's it's also helped by the way in which he lets his camera just sit. Mm hmm. So this movie lives in like five, seven, eight minute long shots. Uh, of course, Quarren's done this before. There's a shot in Children of Men that is famous for just the, the length and choreography of it. The choreography here is not quite as intricate, although there are moments that hint at it. Um, it's simpler. It's just a camera that sits while the world unfolds in multiple panes within that shot. Uh, and the first time I watched it, my jaw just kind of dropped 
watching him make a movie. The second time I went, I, I was able to pull my jaw back up and kind of live into the characters a little bit more um, and, and get into that sense of what is happening not just in the different planes of a camera shot, but at the different planes of this film. So that, yes, Cleo in the foreground, um, as you've pointed out, is this kind of attempt to live your own memories by highlighting the memories of somebody else, uh, which is, a, a, I think, a really beautiful move. Um, and, and we can talk way more about the way in which she is and is not part of this family and the, both the love and, and distance that he feels from her. But then also to see in the background the, the story of this family playing out in the middle distance and even the story of Mexico and Mexico City playing out in the, in, 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 in the far distance. Uh, and to, to watch those intersect was really fascinating. I'm curious from you, because one of the critiques that has arisen, I mean, this movie had so much buzz, and then like everything that has this much buzz, it's had a little bit of, a, a little bit of backlash. And one of the things I hear in that backlash is that this is really hagiography, hmm. um, that Quaron has set Cleo up on a pedestal that is kind of inaccessible, um, and that she doesn't show up as kind of a real character. And I'm wondering how that sits with you, whether that lands or whether you think there's something more going on. I, I think as I watched this movie, I too was trying to figure out, is this is this an accurate reflection of... Cleo as a character within a larger story and is this an accurate reflection of the the life of a household worker in Mexico City in the early 70s and and I keep coming back to this I think central tension and it's one that Quaron is not interested in resolving for us which is can we hold that People are culturally determined based upon where they're from. Um, and given that cultural determination, we can make some moral ethical claims about their lives, about whether or not it's fair that um, that Cleo has to fear for her job when she gets pregnant and whether or not it's um, the love that this these children can actually have for someone that they employ. Um, well, also trying to balance that with the fact that there are that people have individual agency and you you never get the i never got the sense that cleo was flat i just got the sense that she was in she had her own sense of interiority and she didn't need to spill all of that in order for her to be a real character in the same way that there are plenty of people in this world who have an interior life that they choose not to share with the world. And I think this is made all the more powerful because there is a moment where she does share something very deeply, deeply personal after a moment of, or a few moments in her life of trauma and danger and insecurity. And it seems to me that that decision was well earned, at least to to my ears and eyes as I watched it. That these this is a family that she loves insofar as she can love them as an employee of a family. This is a family that loves her insofar as they can love her without the sort of nest without as much mutuality as we'd really want. Um, but at the same time, I I feel like. Quaron in this movie is trying to not set her up as um, as a um, as a sort of pure and spotless, but as um, someone who, even as a small child, he couldn't quite figure out, and that's okay, right? That 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 there are, we don't have to understand all parts of a person in order to love them. Um, and it's worth searching how that love is determined and how it's insufficient. And yet it still feels like love. Um, and that's, that's a very real, I think, uh, feeling. 
as as we live in a world where our relationships with each other and with other with with the world are increasingly com- complicated. How about you? I mean, does that does the 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 critique of hagiography sit sit with you, or I mean, or does it is Quaron up to something more? I mean, I think if the purpose of this film is to do a character study of Cleo, then I think the critique lands a bit. Because I I do sense that, granted, we are not shown a great deal of her interior life, but she is at times depicted as being kind of almost superhuman. I mean, there's this moment where there's kind of an exercise class or kind of a, it's like a karate training thing. And the, the teacher can do this kind of amazing yoga pose and nobody yes. else can do it. And then we, tr- we cut to Cleo who was doing it perfectly with no training. That seems like emblematic of a certain kind of, she is a, a little bit um, uh, almost superhuman in, in some of those moments. That being said, I, I am not convinced that this movie is designed to be a character portrait of her. I, I think there's something more going on. I think it, it, I think it's designed, as you pointed out already, to be this kind of uh, extension of love to her that is also, in its own way, deeply critical of the um, of the family dynamic and the social dynamic and the social structure that is embedded in this relationship. And, and what lingers with me, and there's so many moments in this film that do linger, but what, what lingers with me more powerfully than anything else is, is the very, very end of the film. And you've alluded to this moment of, of kind of deep openness and confession that Cleo has. There's this moment of trauma and she's, she's able to, surface some stuff that's been inside and and has this deep moment of intimacy with the family um that that really lives as the the climactic moment of the film and for for a brief second there i think the audience is led to believe that the relationship between cleo and the family has now been changed in some meaningful way mm-hmm. um yeah. and and then they go back to the house and we even though the moment has been traumatic, as a as an audience, we are in a kind of euphoric state because Cleo has been seen by the family in a way that she wasn't before because they've had this moment of of connection and intimacy, and and maybe even reconciliation, and maybe even reconciliation, yeah. right? Um, and then they come back to the house. And they, they, the house is kind of has been transformed in some ways. They have, they're, they're, there's a, there's new life. They get assigned into new rooms, and then immediately one of the kids asks for a smoothie, yes, and puts her right oh. back into the place that she was in before. And then at the very last, the film, the camera just sits as Cleo goes back to her room via this very, very, very long outside staircase. The one step at a time that further and further separates and reinforces the separation between her and this family that she's had this intimate moment with. And at the very end of the film is just her walking into the domestic servant quarters that are an entirely different world, an entirely different reality, kind of back to her corner and closing the door behind and it leaves. And that, that is haunting to me um, because it says yeah, this was, this was never about her. This is about that staircase. I mean, it's about the distance in between. And we get this, this moment, yeah, this, this moment where things are transparent, and then, then we go back, which feels very real to me. Are there other moments in that film that are lingering with you? I mean, there's so many for me. Yeah, so many. I mean, so let's talk about the very, very, very beginning, which is one of those long shots that Quaron is known for, but it is, it's not a particularly sophisticated shot. It is stationary, but it, it's a, the camera focuses on a drain that is in the hallway and garage of this house. That is the, that is the center of so much of what happens within this movie. And, uh, and 
you see water sort of flushing into the drain. And you're not quite sure what, what's going on. I mean, it's hard to tell, at, at least with the immediate shot, what you're looking at. And there is a sort of water that's being, is, is it a wave? Is it, is it someone cleaning? And it, the water, sort of soapy water, continues to come into this drain. And then in the reflection of the water, you see a plane fly through the fl frame in the sky. So the, the, the water reflects the plane in the sky above it. And that plane will come back as the final image of the movie as well. And so there's a particular bookend, but this is the first image of water and water is going to continue to show up in this movie over and over and over again as a sort of central theme of, of all of the things that water is. Um, but here we get, um, a long shot of someone cleaning a garage, even though we don't see who's cleaning it. We come to learn that it's Cleo, and Cleo is the center of this movie. But it is this: it is the epigraph, the epilogue to everything that's going to happen afterwards, right? And it is the it is trying to it is show it is showing you the distance between the terrestrial and the heavenly in a lot of ways, right? This, this, how far away this plane is above and how, um, how material the world is in which these people live. And in between is water that allows people to see, or maybe to, to pass through those two realms. So as you think about that, that scene, what, what stands out to you as like as as its meaning or what is it sort of beginning to to conjure in the film yeah and it, it i mean it's that distance between the terrestrial and the heavenly but also i think just the you see the labor that cleo puts in to making that hallway clean and that that what is setting up is how hard it is just to to make that into into clean you know almost sanctified space and then immediately the dog comes in and shits all over it and yeah. not five minutes later the the husband comes home and he is not loved in this film and he makes some passing comment about how they can never about why there's always shit in the alley um and and so what you get is this setup of just how hard it is to how much work it takes to create something that seems pure just for a moment and how quickly it evaporates, which I think is exactly what plays out again and again, especially in the, in the, the final, in, in the final act of this film where we, we, again, we have this moment of transcendence and then immediately it gets sucked back into the earthly and the messy and the shitty. Um, so that, that, that sense of, of, of labor that works to uh, create something intimate or something holy uh, and, and how quickly it gets undone. Um, it feels very relevant to this film and it, and it says something to me. I mean, it gets to something theological for me pretty quickly too. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, how would you use this? I mean, in a, in a ministry context or in a church context, I mean, there's a lot of theological resonance here. How would you... How would you package it? Is there a way that Roma could be of practical value for you in your church and your congregational setting? Yeah, I mean, so the way that I'm thinking about this from either a ministerial setting or from a theological setting is to think about work and how how we assess the goodness of work. And, um, and given everything you've just said and the ways in which the, the work— of Cleo in particular, but there are other scenes in this movie where there is a sort of common work that's used to accomplish a goal that does bind people together. I'm thinking about when there's the sort of wildfire in the forest where the bucket brigade comes out and, um, and the rich and the poor alike are beginning to try and stamp out this fire with water. And then suddenly in this maybe the most surreal part of the movie there's a man singing and he seems to be singing the song and and to your point earlier it's a it's a like 
this holy thing is happening, albeit it's slightly less holy in degree than the thing that will come by the end of the movie, but it is a precursor and I think a foreshadowing of that final reconciliation that the song erupts and some measure of beauty in, is, um, is inspired by this common, um, this common work. And so I think about that and I think about all of the ways in which our work and work can be exploited and the ways in work in which work can be um, um, can be damaged and can feel utilitarian. And as I watch this movie, I I'm thinking about St. Kevin. The story of St. Kevin is that Kevin is praying in his his hermitage, his little monastic hut. And his hut is so small that he has to keep his his hands, his arms outstretched outside the hut. And as his arms are outstretched, a bird comes and lays an egg in his hand. Um, and Kevin, being a saint, realizes that the, the bird has mistaken his hand for a nest. And so now his, his hand has to be a nest until the, um, the egg hatches and the, the birds are fledged and then until they fly away. And so suddenly now he is sort of like, He's knit into the order of all things, and he realizes that this is the holy work that he has to do. And it is to, as Seamus Heaney will write a poem about it later, to um, to seek work without reward. And that there is a deep holiness in that. And so I, I wonder if there's there's a way to talk about this movie with respect to the work and how work can have intrinsic good, um, even in the midst of um, all of the terrible exploitation and problems that come with our visions of work in this world. And this is especially important to me in a place where I think um, people are overworked and are finding too much um too much of their identity in what they do um, and not finding um, identity or significance or worth in just having um, having done something well because it has its own intrinsic worth, whether or not it's ever recognized. I don't know. That's that's what immediately comes to mind as you look at your community. What would what how would this show up? I think there's some interesting, I mean, we'll talk about preaching in a minute. I think there's some interesting uh, conversation to be made here around the um, the liturgical act of confession and assurance of pardon. Mm. Um, you know, we have at University of Presbyterian, like many churches, we have a giant central font right at the front of the sanctuary and uh, generally, we um, pour water into the font as part of the assurance of pardon on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I um, love that. And, and that feels to me like what this movie is doing. <laughs> uh, in, in that, in, in that the, the, the washing of the alley that is making, that there is so much work to create this very provisional, temporary, kind of holy thin space um, where something sacred can happen, even with the knowledge that immediately the dog is going to come shit on it. There, there's, there's something about, and, and, and it is, I think it dovetails well, there's something about the work of that that feels meaningful and critical and, and absolutely vocational, even knowing that before we finish the sentence, the dog is going to come back. And I... <laughs> Um, right, I, right. You cannot keep it at bay. Yeah, like, I, I, it's been a while since I've done a preaching series that was kind of on parts of worship. But I think if I was going to preach on the act of praise or the assurance of pardon, I, I might, I might try to thread this in somehow. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's so interesting the way water works here, both as absolution, um, as a sort of a encouragement of confession it is also an oracle of so much too it is the it tells you about the future in the very first scene it's going to be mirrored later but also when when cleo's water breaks 
it's um, it's an oracle of what is to come of the of the trauma that is impending because the water breaking is also reflective of the world that's breaking also around her. Uh, it's yeah, I think just the image of this, this is, this has broadened my image of water, which is such a central and important, uh, symbol of the church. And to, to think about it in a couple of new ways, I could see how that would inspire some liturgical pieces that might, might incorporate water better, but also help people to have a new relationship with the, the water of their baptism or the water that comes with absolution. So having said that, let us also say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. Catherine Reckless, who does their media column at the at the Century, wrote a great piece on Roma, and we encourage you to go read it. She also wrote a new piece on Mary Poppins, the new Mary Poppins movie, Mary Poppins Returns. It's actually a really thoughtful review of a strange set of movies, these two movies, uh, the one with Julie Andrews and this newest one. Um, Matt, I know that you have some thoughts on Mary Poppins Returns. You want to let out your inner leftist here? Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm on the record in this show as being kind of a, a medium on the original Mary Poppins, but I think what, what, what I love about it is that the way it plays that dichotomy between the, the, the sanctuary, the church, the cathedral, and the bank, yeah. um, and and I, I don't want to spoil too much of Mary Poppins Returns, but in a really critical, I actually really liked Mary Poppins Returns, uh, except that there is a plot moment where there's no other way to interpret it except that thank, except thank God for the bank, and moreover, kind of thank God for the bank, not just in this movie, but for the way the bank acted in the first Mary Poppins movie, which seems like an undoing in some really substantial ways of one of the things that that movie got right it's it, it almost feels like uh thank god darth vader was there the whole time and <laughs> and that 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 made me deeply uncomfortable uh so i, I i've got some i've got some frustrations that he's a jedi right yeah. right right exactly um yeah i i think Catherine would agree with you, and I wish you were here to to, to continue this conversation. So uh, go ahead and read it. Um, if you have thoughts on Mary Poppins Returns, forward them to Matt. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. I also wrote a book that's now, now available. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. It's out um, it's got a couple of reviews that came in this week that I was pleased about. So go read those if you need some convincing that it's worth buying. All right, Matt, moving on. Yeah, let's move on to preaching. Uh, this next segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for Epiphany 3, January 27th. We have Ezra's reading of the Torah and Nehemiah. We have a psalm on how nature and Torah proclaim God's goodness. We have Paul's analogy about the church as a body in 1 Corinthians. And finally, we have Jesus' first sermon in Galilee. Adam, as you look through all these texts, what sparks for you? Anything intersecting with Roma? Well, so the Nehemiah text is a really important one in homiletics, actually. And so sure. let me talk about it just briefly. Um, it's generally argued within the homiletical literature that this Nehemiah text where Ezra stands up with a Torah that they've found um, and then he reads it to the gathered assembly and then the text says and then he interprets it for them. And there are lots of places within um, the Hebrew Bible where you can look and see something that resembles preaching. This is probably the closest we get to the beginning practice of how we understand preaching, at least within the Reformed tradition. And so it, it's an important text for like gathering that moment where we we look at Scripture and we make it understandable or we give we provide some measure of meaning or interpretation of the Scriptures for the edification of the community and for the um the teaching of the community, and finally for um, the uh, the praise of God and the uh, that sort of doxological, as as worship scholars would say. Um, it's also an important text in biblical hermeneutics discussions as well. 
so as I was reading this text, I was thinking about how I generally watch movies that I have only passing interest in, which is I have my phone or an iPad and I read things on the iPad and I barely watch the movie in front of me. This is sort of how I watch uh, a lot of so-so movies. Um, so this is how you watch Skyscraper, right? This is how I watch Skyscraper. This is how I'm going to watch Rampage that is going that's now on HBO that I will watch probably this weekend. Um, so we have this second screen experience that is affecting the way that we watch media, especially movies. And I am reminded that a, that film and cinema and movies some of them actually require our attention. <laughs> and Roma is one of them. It is a movie that is pretty slow at the beginning. Um, it You have to sort of be into not only the filmmaking, but also the, the, the ways in which the plot moves in fits and starts. And um, it, it finds momentum by the, the the last act or the last two acts. But for the most part, it it's going to ask of you as a viewer. It, there is, if you try and put a second screen in front of you, you will miss all of the value of this movie. And um, I think also because it is so laden with so many images and with so much camera movement and where the camera lingers. And um, it also requires some interpretation. It has some drama. It has some plot. It has some conflict. But I think it feels very foreign to the popular movies that we watch. And for many people, that is really exciting. Um, but as we move into this Oscar season, I, I'm realizing that it's not gathering the buzz that I would like it to, in part because I think it requires some measure of interpretation. And a movie like The Star is Born does not. And uh, and so as I think about Nehemiah and I think about um, the scriptures and the way that we engage the scriptures, the way that congregations need in interpretive moments, I also think that there are movies in Roma being one of them also need some interpretive moments. Um, they need communities who are going to gather around them and try and tease them out. And before the show, Matt, you and I were talking about Guillermo del Toro, who is a close friend of Alfonso Cuaron, um, giving his own interpretations of this movie for the world and how pleased I was, even though those interpretations um, sort of, have been said by others or have been reflected um, in in our own readings and watchings. Um, I was so pleased to be in conversation with him as he watched a movie um, and to, to have a conversation, albeit in a very strange Twitter way, um, as we try and interpret a movie that is very, very complex. So that's my that's my sort of Nehemiah reading of Roma. Yeah. What do you think about that? I like that a lot. And one of the things that I appreciate about that Nehemiah passage, I mean, neither one of us are going to say anything here that I think is actually workable from a pulpit, but they're kind of meta reflections on the life of being in the pulpit. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I, I, I appreciate about that passage, not as a, um, as a professional academic homiletician, but as a working preacher is the way in which it, just gives weight to my vocation. It's a, it's a passage that helps me feel seen and, uh-huh. and helps me feel like the work that I try to do on Sunday morning has value and is, and has merit. And, and I think that's, that's the parallel too, right? Is that what Roma is trying to do? Well, one of the things Roma is trying to do is to make Cleo feel seen. And that, and that's the, 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 the furthest stretch of the comparison I want to make between the work I do and what Cleo does but just in the sense of the, the value of, of having your own vocational track or the value of having your own workaday life um, be seen and be visible and be recognized, uh, I, I think is, is, is really profound. And it's worth remembering, especially for all of us who labor in the pulpit and are trying to figure out how to make sure that the people who hear us are also feeling seen in their own ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, any other passages speaking to you? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the body of Christ image is, um, 
you know, one of those very overplayed moments in scripture uh, that I'm sure many of us will preach about that Sunday regardless. Uh, and I can certainly see using Roma to play into that here, just in the sense of, you know, it always depends on how far you want to tease the analogy, but just in the sense of the, the film as uh, an attempt to lift up a, a person who um, has been part of that family, a part of the body of that family, who was, you know, I think the implication is was was invisible. Um, and so the, the work of making her seen is also the work of reconciling this body to itself um, and recon- reconciling its pieces to each other. And so there's there's something there's something valuable there that will preach and, you know, and do the, the kind of, I mean, simplistic, but still nonetheless important uh, work of, of helping us imagine who in the broader body of Christ, who in the bodies of our congregation or in the bodies of our communities, who is, is unseen that we uh, need to make sure has our attention. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's a way of doing that here um, that, that could be valuable. Yeah, and and to extend that even further, I think this this image that Paul conjures in First Corinthians about the body, it it always reads a little too static to me, or a little too determined. Like Matt, you're always going to be a finger man. Sorry, and doesn't have enough uh, flex to it. And so the the danger, the inherent danger of this image is to say. Um, you have a role and that role is unchanging. You know, you will be saddled with that role forever. Um, and I, I've always tried to see this this passage as having a little bit more dynamic dynamism than that or having more life than that, which is to say that like we we unassemble and reassemble the body based upon occasion and upon need. And and that's really important because at the end of the day, like it does someone need to be a foot forever? Like, do they need to be the one that has to bear the weight of everything? That's after a while, like just looking at how, how that affects someone like Cleo, right. Who has to shoulder so much of the burden in this. I I'd like to think that there is a sort of an opportunity for her to switch into a new role that, that depending on where she is, she can, she can be somebody else. And um, and so I, I I've always tried to understand this passage as having having a bit more life. Um, this and this reminded so there's a really interesting article in the newest New Yorker about hell, um, and and about how our like particular theologies of hell have evolved over the last you know four thousand years, give or take, and. The article is written by a guy named Vincent, Vincent Cunningham, and it's really good. And he makes a point at one point that uh, that when we take hell and we call this world and, and we and we bring it into this world, not as a sort of like a place of eternal damnation and punishment, but as a a lived reality of people in this world, that it's always the poor who have to live in hell when hell is on earth. Um, and that upends and actually kind of defeats the purpose of what hell was designed to do to begin with, which was <laughs> supposed to be a place of justice, right? Where like, finally the bad people who have been winning on this earth, they don't get to win in the end. And so, um, so by refashioning hell in this world, what we've done to some extent is um, just made it a place for the people, the poor people who have been using hell as a way to sort of solve, um, S-A-L-V-E, um, solve their, um, their own troubles with the injustice of the world. I mean, I think similarly with Paul's analogy, there are times where I'm like, uh, in order to solve the sort of injustice in this, in this image, we also need to have a sort of antagonism in the analogy to help us see that like you don't have to be the foot forever you don't you don't have to be the 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 liver that has to clean the body you know sometimes you get to be the beating heart and um 
and I think that's that's something that I think about is as as I look at Cleo and I I want her not have to be the ones that sh- the that shoulders the burden for this family forever. All right. Now it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? Uh, so this is, I mean, it might be a little late because it's kind of a Christmas movie, but um, but my my son has been watching it a lot lately, which is um, the Snowy Day on Amazon. Did you have you seen this yet? Uh-uh, no. Uh, so there's a very famous um, kids book called Snowy Day um, by Jack. Kent Keats. Um, it's a lovely urban telling of snow. Um, the book is, and it gets sort of blown out and some story and some plot is added to the story for, um, for the Christmas occasion. And, uh, I'm actually, I'm just like deeply in love with this movie. It's about 35 minutes long. In the Christmas season, I watch a lot of Christmas movies and they almost all have some version of parents like dying or not being around um, it or they have like bad guys who are trying to kill Christmas or they have a sort of this unbelief that is going to ruin Christmas because you don't believe in Santa Claus or something like that. And so all of those tropes are absolutely missing from Snowy Day. It is in many ways the anti-home alone. Um, it is also an antidote to the suburban and small town nostalgia that shows up mm. in most Christmas stories. It is um, it is an urban story. It is full of difference. It has some like truly sad moments um, where the stakes are as small as can be. But because of the care and the anticipation that you see in a child's eyes, they read so big and important. And it 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 has a lovely um, a lovely message of like an urban diversity that has something to add to our Christmas stories. Um, there are people from a number of different religious backgrounds, racial backgrounds, and and I I'm just yeah I'm just deeply in love with this movie. Nice and the way that it. Um, that it has conjured something that I found I didn't realize was totally lacking until I watched it. And so I think it has entered into Christmas movie canon for our family. And it's one that I look forward to watching again next year. So I commit it to you. Snowy day. All right. How about you? So mine is, mine is dumber. Um, (laughs) Do you remember the fire festival? Oh, how could I forget? It's one of I, th- I think about it often as one of those things that is like so stupid. I, I actually think my generation is is got a lot to offer the world, and then I think like here's one of its lowest, most idiotic moments. Right. The fire festival was this like supposed to be this just kind of lush Instagram worthy um, music festival on this secluded island in the Bahamas, and ends up being just like the the worst worst organized most poorly planned event that basically ends, ends up luring a bunch of very wealthy trendsetters to live in a fema camp for a weekend <laughs> like a jaw rule was supposed right to be there. <laughs> okay so if you want to know more about the fire festival you can now participate in what i think is the, one of the more postmodern things that has happened in recent memory which is that they are now battling fire festival documentaries <laughs> So, so the, the, there's been one like that, that Netflix has been hyping for a while that just dropped, which is called Fire. But then Hulu this week sneakily dropped um, its own Fire Festival documentary called Fire Fest. And what is amazing is that both of these documentaries are super complicit and broken in their own ways, and they're sniping at each other. Oh my so, God. So Fire on Netflix is made by some of the PR folks who were involved in the production of the Fire Festival itself, which is a fact that is not lost on the Hulu documentarians who effectively call out the Netflix documentary in their documentary. Um, However, on the other hand, 
the Hulu documentarians made this film in part by writing a large undocumented check to the guy who was about to go to prison in part for having organized this tremendous mess in the first place. So <laughs> it is so conflicted and compounded on itself. And, and I do, I'm holding this up and is, you know, an early nominee for the most postmodern thing of 2019. I know it's early. Um, I, I I have watched the Hulu documentary. I have not watched the Netflix documentary yet. I probably will. Um, I am not so much commending the films to you as that you should at least go and read a bit about the battle between the films because there's something deeply revelatory uh, and joyfully broken about it all at the same time. So that's what I've got for today, Adam. It's, oh, it's, that is amazing. Yeah. I love it. I, well, number one, I love when there are two movies that come out about the same time. Right. Right, this is Ants and a Bug's Life life all over again. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Prefontaine movies. Right. (laughs) um, Deep Impact and Armageddon. Right. Uh, Also, for all of our media criticism uh, PhD students out there, like this seems like a ready-made dissertation topic right here. Absolutely. We need actually like a, this needs to be, we need a vocabulary word for what happens when movies are twins. Yeah. Yeah, this, this I don't is, know what that is. This is one Let's of those nouns that just doesn't exist yet. And um, maybe, we, you know, if you, uh, this is a, a, can be a listener contest. If you've got a nominee for what the, what the vocabulary word should be when movies come out at the same time that are effectively the same thing, um, please, please let us know. Because I feel like this is something we could coin. This could be our contribution to the lexicon. It could be. And, you know, bonus points if it's German. Right, sure. So, yeah, then, then your PhD students will really use it. Uh, okay, that about wraps it up for this episode of the show. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it right, how we got it wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. You can also find us again on the Christian Century. Special thanks, of course, to them. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Nude Karate. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. 